warm welcome to you all. Hope you'll thoroughly enjoy our program. Real Britannia, a very British podcast about very British films, with the occasional hint of professionalism. Stephen would be so proud of me, because that is probably the first time in weeks that I've done that intro without <laughs> fluffing. Hello, Scott here, Stephen, at the other end of the line. Hello, sir. Hello, mate. Yes, well done. <laughs> yes, we'll, we'll bank that one, and you can maybe just um, play it pre-recorded every I time. I might have to, mate. It's, why do I struggle over that every week? It's, uh, yeah, always. Um... I don't know about you. There's, there's, there's a famous saying, isn't it? It's grim up north. Is it grim up there today? Because it is miserable down here today. It's grey, wet, and horrible. It, it is grim up here. Yeah, yeah. it's, um, it's, it's grey and it's rainy and it's cold <laughs> and yeah, just everywhere you look, it's just people with sad faces. Although of course up here, we're, we you know, we're not maybe as wrapped up against the, the weather as they are down there. The I, I know I was down in London on Friday and there was. Lots of people walk around going, oh, it's cold. And I'm thinking, I've just taken my jumper off because it was I too hot. No, I know. I've done, so, noticed on the train, people with scarves and woolly hats and things. I'm just thinking, it's not as cold. It's not that cold. But, yeah, winter's definitely kicking in. I'm at, Then again, when this episode goes out, this could be February for all we know. I'm not too sure when this one's yeah. due to be broadcast. <laughs> We're getting so far ahead, I think, with these that sometimes we might end up going an entire year ahead and getting round to it being released a year after we recorded it anyway. So not a bad um, thing. Yeah. At some point, yeah. <laughs> it's like they do when they um they're designing the Easter eggs, they're done eighteen months before they actually uh that, that particular Easter. It's a bit 18 weird. Eighteen months. Um, I can remember when I worked in the video shop we used to sell popcorn and sweets and things like that. And the delivery of Cadbury's cream eggs the first delivery would be Boxing Day. Yeah, mince pies come into the supermarkets um, last week of August. Wow. Into the actual delivery. And some of them have best before dates um, that finish at the end of October. So there are some people eating mince pies in September and October. So, <laughs> um, so yes, I think, we're not, I think we're doing quite well in comparison with the recording of, of these. So, yeah, we're in the run up to Christmas for, you know, yeah. for people that want to know what, you know, what time of the year we are definitely at here. December is literally just around the corner. Uh, we're talking about potential recordings of Christmas episodes, which probably by now you would have heard because we'll leapfrog this episode. will leapfrog the Christmas episode. So yes, it's yes. just weird, isn't it, the way the podcasting world works? In so many ways. <laughs> <laughs> so, is your selection this week, sir? What is it? It's uh, I chose educating Rita. Okay, Willie Russell, Michael Caine, and Julie Walters. We'll be back after this.
Tonight's movie, Educating Rita, is based on the Willie Russell play that was commissioned by the Royal Shakespeare Company and first performed at the warehouse in London in June 1980. The play follows the relationship between a 26-year-old Liverpudlian working-class hairdresser and Frank, a middle-aged university lecturer, during the course of a year. The original production starred Julie Walters in the title role, with Mark Kingston as Frank, and was directed by Mike Ockran. The movie version, released just three years later, marked the big screen debut for Walters, who reprised the role alongside none other than Michael Caine. Willie Russell wrote the screenplay, adapted of course from his original material, and veteran director Lewis Gilbert was brought on board to helm the entire production. Lewis would recall later that initially it was difficult to raise finance for the film, with Columbia Pictures demanding that Dolly Parton be cast as Rita. The entire production was filmed in and around Dublin, including the scene that was supposedly set in France. As well as Walters and Kane, who would receive BAFTAs and Golden Globes for Best Actor and Actress, there are a number of familiar faces here. The late Michael Williams, Mr Judy Dench, is superb here as the philandering Brian, along with Maureen Lippmann as the troubled Trish, Rita's roommate. The film focuses on Rita's unhappiness with her life in her blue-collar, working-class environment, including her husband, who wants Rita to cease her educational pursuits and instead to have children. Rita struggles to fit into a new educated middle-class existence in academia while seeking a better song to sing. Rita's original preconceptions that the educated classes have better lives and are happier people are brought into question throughout the film through Frank's failing social life and his alcoholism. And there's also her flatmate Trish's attempted suicide. Rita, her search and her search's meaning for her all evolve as she adapts to academia and grows as a person. Critics were generally warm to the movie and it has over the years become an important part of British film history. Although celebrated Chicago film critic Roger Ebert, giving the film two stars out of four, described it as a forced march for a formula relationship. He said Russell's screen adaptation added mistresses, colleagues, husbands, in-laws, students and a faculty committee that were all unnecessary. And said the playwright stroke screenwriter started with an idealistic challenging idea and then cynically tried to broaden its appeal. There were rumours of a remake in 2002 when original director Lewis Gilbert announced plans that he wished to refilm the movie with an all-black cast that could possibly have included Halle Berry and Denzel Washington. The project, however, never got off the ground. It is essentially a two-hander, with its stage roots evident. But what you get here is a warm, charming, witty and emotional piece of work. It's the film that Michael Caine described in 2007 as the last good picture he made before he mentally retired. It also provided the springboard for Julie Walters to prove that not only was she a gifted TV comedian, she could give Hollywood a run for its money as well. So put down your copy of Ruby Fruit Tuesday, remember the difference between assonance and consonance, and join us after the trailer for our thoughts on Educating Rita. When Frank Bryant, a scholarly, dedicated... Doctor, are you drunk? 
You don't really expect me to teach this when I'm sober. Upstanding member of the academic community meets Rita. Somehow their lives will never be the same. Oh, hello. I was just oiling it for you. He's her reluctant tutor. You're my tutor. But no, I've told you I do not want to do it. Why pick on me? I like you. And she's his most determined student. So she enrolls in college to find herself. In the wrong way. She wants more out of life. I want to look like that. Okay. Was that the book you're reading? Yeah, yeah. What's it called? Oh, of human bondage. Yeah? My husband's got a lot of books like that. And nothing is going to stand in her way. Not her husband, nothing. Columbia Pictures presents Educating Rita, starring Michael Caine and introducing Julie Walters as Rita. They started out studying literature. Rita, why didn't you walk in here 20 years ago? I don't think they would have accepted me at the age of six. But what happens between them is pure chemistry. He helps her change her life. My God, what is this vision I see before me? Her attitude. He teaches her everything he knows. But he's the one who ends up learning a lot more than he bargained for. I hear good things about Australia. Why don't you come as well? Sometimes, students end up being the best teachers. Educating Rita. Educating Rita, released in 1983, directed by Lewis Gilbert, starring, as we said, Michael Caine and Julie Walters, but also you've got Michael Williams, Maureen Lipman in there as well, which was surprising. I thought I'd seen this, by the way, and I hadn't. I've, I've seen bits really? of it. Yeah, it's one of those ones that, for some reason, I, I thought I'd seen it, you know, 1983 when it came out. I remember it being on in the house. I remember my parents watching it, and I've seen, um, you know, there were bits I was familiar with as I was watching. I've never actually sat and watched the whole thing. So, first time watch for me, for you, I'm pretty sure you've seen it a fair few times, haven't you? I think I've seen it probably four times, yeah. maybe in, in the entirety of, of my life. Yeah, yeah not sh- not very recently, though, to be perfectly honest. I think it's at least five years since I've seen it. Yeah, I'm assuming it's a bit of a favourite then, because you've seen it a few, fair few times and you've brought it to the table today. It's It's one I felt drawn back to, because... Um, as I've aged, I felt there's something more I can pull out of it that I maybe yeah. didn't understand because there, there are some clever references in it to literature and things. And yes. uh, so I think that was partly it that I was thinking um, I'm a bit more educated now myself, um, and I might actually be able to to understand an extra element of it each time. So yeah. which I think I did. So. Well, I went the extra mile watching this for the first time. I also got on Amazon a copy of the play. Um, a second-hand copy cost me a penny. The postage was £1.20, but it cost me a penny. Very slim volume. And flicking through it, I didn't actually read it properly. But I wasn't aware that, obviously, this was written in the early 80s. What Willie Russell did was, 2003, I think it was, he updated it because there were some references specific to that age that he thought modern audiences 
might have forgotten or might not be aware of to the younger audience, you know. And and he's updated it to a certain degree, you know, with different topical, you know, parts. And I also discovered, because I also bought, there was York Notes, right? This is, oh, yes. This is taught at yeah. GCSE. Yeah. I didn't know, that. you know, totally unaware, totally unaware. So, again, I, I haven't read them in any great depth, but it's interesting that a Willie Russell play is actually taught as part of the curriculum in secondary schools. I think probably it was embraced by educationalists has been you know because it the the film is about the the value of of education yeah um as something that can can shape who you are and actually you embracing that and not feeling like you are limited by others yeah um with regards to that i think obviously it's something that educationalists would feel that they wanted to actually shout from the the skies to um to teenagers that Mm. you know as a message there's more to life than what you're going through at the moment you know it's never never too late to learn which is partly you know the biggest message of the of the entire play interestingly director lewis gilbert yes now he's got history with um with michael kane alfie being the biggest Mm -hmm. i think yeah yeah also i think he did a couple of bomb movies Moonraker. And Moonraker was one of them. Yeah, I love me um, some of the Roger Moore's, wasn't it? The uh, yeah, yeah. And I think he did a couple of war films like Reach for the Sky. I'm sure he directed Reach. Yes, he did. There you go. Yes, he directed Reach for the Sky with Kenneth Moore, which yeah, we will and, be getting to at some point. Yeah, and he did um, the the film that's often spoken about in the same same breath of of this um, educating reader is. Um, Shelley Valentine, obviously, like you said before, mm. um, connection there as well. So. A little bit later, um, wasn't it? I think it was early nineties. Shirley Valentine, I believe. Yeah, but it wasn't. Wasn't it? Was it written before Educating Rita, though? I don't know. I don't I don't know. know. For some reason, I've got that in my head that it was written before, but filmed after. I don't know why. More I'm likely. That, but, More but, likely. Um, yeah. But um, yeah, there's there's you know the interconnections there um, absolutely, and and like you said, it's you know. There's some interesting faces yet to see in, in the cast. So um. yeah, um, Maureen Lipton surprised me. Wasn't expecting her at all. Um, oh right, yeah. And Michael Williams, who we forever associate, dear old Michael Williams, Mister uh, Judy Dench. Mister Judy Dench, exactly. But yeah, passed away long, long time ago now, hasn't he? He's no longer with us. Yeah. Let's talk Julie Walters. Obviously, you know, with Michael Caine being in this movie, you think, well, Michael Caine's going to be the the big draw here, the star. But what's apparent from the minute you see Julie Walters, and she hasn't even opened her mouth at this point, there's something special going on here. This is her first movie, isn't it, I believe? Yes, actually. I think it is. It's the first big screen, isn't it? Because prior to this, we'd have known her from Wooden Walters and Julie. Yeah, it was, wasn't it? Victoria Wood, basically. That's how we knew her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, That great double act that there was, which sort of they remained incredibly close friends yeah. right up to the end but they you know obviously um the different paths that they took but kept joining back up again with yeah, each other um it was working, yeah, a fantastic partnership yeah, yeah. yeah every now and again they get together and do whether it be comedy or drama they, they did a couple of dramatic things together as well yes. didn't they where they played, played sisters didn't they that thing where julie waters went off to become an american soap star or something wasn't it and left a a working class roots behind, but fantastic actress. 
absolutely oh, fantastic absolutely, in yeah. this. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously there's it's very easy to people to dwell on the likes of um Emma Thompson and 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 Judy Dench yeah. and Helen Mirren and, and these, you know, actresses that are the the ones with the the classical training in Shakespeare and, and that kind of thing that are doing the costume dramas and such. But you know, Julie Walters as an actress is phenomenal. Yeah. She's such an enormous talent and like I said um when I was introducing this on the, the last episode, about her being, you know, the greatest living working class actress because that, yeah. that she's 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 working class in all of her films, um and proudly so in, in real life. And it's a bit odd in this film that, you know, Michael Caine started out as being the the working class boy, but in this he's he's definitely not playing a working class oh, character. Oh, um quite oh. the opposite really. Always so. uncomfortable when Michael Caine doesn't play Cockney. Always, I don't know what it is. I mean, even in Zulu, which is you know famous for being a posh officer, it never sits right with me. Is it because it because you know he's acting? It makes it more obvious because he's putting on a different voice, a different accent. And one thing I must point out: obviously, this is you know its roots are on stage here. I think Julie Waters is the only one that gives a performance that isn't stagey. Do you know what I mean? I mean, when we see her husband, Julie Waters' husband, Denny, I think he's called. Yeah, yeah. His performance is like something on stage to me. It was very sort of over the top. It was sort of preaching to the back row, almost. And Michael Caine has these long, sort of drawn-out speeches, which you think, yeah, I could, I could see you performing this on stage. But Julie Waters comes across as a film actress in this. It just actually, it just so natural the way she comes across. I think there's, you know, beyond her being a fantastic actress, I think there's possibly um, a bit of um, herself in yeah. in the actual world though, because obviously, you know, she's um, come into the acting world and um, she has come, had to face a number of hurdles, I think, um, being historically working class and not changing her accent to be yeah. um the received pronunciation and so there's you know that's she's gone through that battle herself of, of sort of the class perception interestingly i mean she, she never made it big in hollywood i don't think she ever will now because she is quintessentially a british working class actress then again she was in the harry potters wasn't she that was probably... she was in harry potters and not she was in those mamma mia things as well wasn't ah, she? which i haven't seen so yeah yeah she's, um, she's in them which is what a lot of people who don't know british cinema will probably recognize her from you know i'm sure she does a fantastic performance in those films even though i don't care to to watch them no so um, nice, mate, yeah. but, but that might be where where a lot of people recognize her from outside the uk she's but in from the, inside the mm. uk she's just oh well, um she's just a, a national treasure just yeah. about to say you mentioned emma thompson on on the stinking paws we have elevated emma thompson and kathy burke believe it or not to the status of national treasure i'm, I'm going to include julie walters under that, that umbrella as well mate um yeah absolutely it should be um and then kathy burke you know i do well and truly believe it because she she is amazing actress in her herself and in a similar vein, to, you know, playing characters that are earthy and, and real and what yeah. we recognise as the people that we meet in the everyday life. American audiences may know her from the recent Paddington movies. That's the other thing I think that they may know her from. But for us, I mean, British movie-wise, she went on to um, 
personal services we mentioned, didn't we, last time, which we'd completely yes. forgotten about, where she plays Cynthia Payne. That's bound to come up at some point when we do it. Yeah. When we do Papa a review. Z- Papa Zogaloo, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And, and um, you know, the Alan Bennett stuff, she was in Talking Heads. She was one of those, wasn't she? Yeah. That... But, but I mean, you'll still remember her from Two Soups. Two Soups is my favourite Victoria Wood, even though Victoria Wood's not in that actual sketch. It's Celia Rimmery, isn't it? And Duncan, yeah. uh, I can't remember his surname. But it's the Two Soups. If, if, dear listener, if you have not seen the Two Soups sketch from Victoria Wood, it's on YouTube. Just, just Google Julie Waters Two Soups. It is the funniest five minutes. Yeah, ever. and then from then from there, just watch the entirety of Acorn Antiques. Acorn Antiques, you get <laughs> national treasure, as you say. But this yeah. movie in particular, yes. um, I enjoyed it. Uh, I think I laughed in all the right places. I got upset in all the right places, and I was pleasantly surprised by it because sometimes when you see a film for production from the 80s or something from this era being adapted from a stage play a little bit trepidatious sometimes think oh is it going to work is it not and this does this absolutely lewis gilbert has done a fantastic job of of breaking away from the confines of of just an office or a classroom by bringing in extra scenes that i'm assuming are not in the stage production you know in the pub or yeah. knocking the wall down at the house or something like i'm not sure if they're in the actual stage production itself so you know there's always always mark of a, a a good director that he can adapt something like this into something cinematic when he can pull more out yeah when he can pull more out of it because it, it we we do know from some of the the film for um 80s and adaptation of things that were great for great plays yeah but transferring them to um a screen uh, either it just looks like you're, you're filming a player or yeah. Or it's too thin on the ground as far as substance, or, uh, or too slow, or it's too creaky in a lot of other ways, um, which this obviously completely um, moves away from and, and shows what can be done with um, the talent that they that have directing-wise as well as you know the, the written form. And then the, the, a lot of it is based upon the interaction between the two characters and uh, particularly, well, Julie Walters' interaction with virtually everybody is is the key part of this film, yeah. um, and that's what carries it through. That you know a lot of the dialogue and the, the the fun and the insight and the emotion of that. Yeah, to transfer it, it could have it could have gone disastrously, but it hasn't. Tugs at the heartstrings as well. I mean, the the subplot with Maureen Lipman, totally unexpected. You know the outcome of that. Yes. Yeah. That I think. Wow. You know, wasn't didn't see that coming at all. And I believe in the play, there's a bit more focus on her mother because we see them in the pub, don't we? And it's just this typical working class family on a Friday night in the booze a lot. They usually are. And then there's a little bit of interaction with her mum, isn't there? Isn't her mum start crying? Well, she stops singing along. Yeah. And she and she's saying about, you know, there must be better songs than this. Uh, there must be more, more than this. And yeah. there's, there's a hint that there, that her mother... Um, has a similar streak to what um, Rita stroke Susan has mm, herself yeah. in that if she'd have been in the same situation, um, she would have, you know, she'd have wanted to have broken out from what was expected of her and done more with her life, yeah. which kind of spurs you to think that, that 
that Rita is taking that as a kind of confirmation that she should go for it. And in fact, you know, the condemnation of her coming from her husband and from her father as far as her breaking the norm. Yeah. There's, it, the her mother, who seems like the stony-faced one out of a lot of them, isn't, <laughs> yeah. isn't the one condemning her. She's the one that's just keeping silent. And apart from her being um, outed, at the wedding during the photos about the fact that she was pregnant before they got married. Oh, course, yeah. <laughs> um, was, you know, apart from that, um, a mother is just showing that that's, that's the alternative mm. to, um, to, to the getting an education and growing as a person. The alternative is being trapped yeah. and being um, put into a, a box that has been, controlled by expectations and and so i suppose that's that's the role that she plays within this film and the, the story that she's that evidence of what um, rita needs to break away from yeah she's overcoming a lot of obstacles along the way um quite quite severe actually you know when her husband actually t- takes all her books and burns them on the bonfire in the garden <coughs> because he, he discovers that she's hidden a contraceptive pill and he believes that she hasn't been taking it for six months or wherever it was. And why hasn't she fallen pregnant? And, and you know, in quite a dramatic way, he takes it takes it out on her by you know burning all of her essays and her books. But she fights through. You know, she realizes at that point, I think, that the marriage is over. Yes. And if she wants to get where she wants to be, she's going to have to do it without Denny. And and in the end, it works out fine for Denny because Denny himself seems to be more happy when we see him later with a new girlfriend, the new pregnant girlfriend, because that's all he wants. He wants kids, pretty much. So her actually, you know, making that stand works out best for everybody. And then the thing I found quite refreshing in this, because I was expecting it to sort of develop into a love story between Michael Caine and Judy Walters, and it is and it isn't, almost. It's, I don't know, how would you describe it? It's not unrequited love. It's... (laughs) There's an admiration, isn't there, that there's, this there's, breath of uh, fresh air has come into his life because his whole disillusionment with how his poetry and his career ended up. There was more a transition of, of dependency of um, initially Julie Walters' character being the one that was needing to learn from Michael Caine mm. and then Michael Caine realising it was him that needed to learn from her. Yeah. And that's how the, the, the transition happened throughout the story and, and they're helping each other out by the end. They've both helped each other, but then go their separate ways. And the there was there was love there for each other, but not in a not in a, a sexual sense of you know, and yeah. I think that was that was wise to be avoided. We're avoiding mentioning about the, any comparisons to um, Pygmalion and um, My Fair Lady because True. that's yeah. I think that's that's a you know that and and Frankenstein are two um, <laughs> two comparisons. But um, with My Fair Lady, the you know that was a, an adaptation, and it was you know there was a subsequent copies of, of Pygmalion that came out were actually trying to correct that Higgins and and Eliza didn't get married didn't get together sort of making the point that that wasn't yeah. that wasn't the outcome and willie russell has written this to, to make sure that it doesn't have that outcome because that isn't what should have happened that would be very trite i think and and it wouldn't be necessarily believable um the way it happened is, is a better ending to what you would have assumed at the beginning and it's probably better that you that what your assumption isn't yeah realized I, th- I think the chemistry between them is spot on here. 
like I say, instantly, before even Julie Walters has even opened her mouth, just her walking across the campus in her high heels and her, her peroxide hair, yeah, you know straight away this character is going to be a lot of fun. And then you meet Michael Caine, who the alcoholic, you know, hiding the bottles of scotch. Hasn't he got the bottle of scotch behind the Lost Weekend initially? Yes. I think he yeah, has. Yeah, which is, you know, quite, quite clever, isn't it? Yeah. Because, you know, obviously if you have a lot of alcohol, you will have a Lost, lost Weekend, yeah. And then, um, after, and then after he takes all the books off the shelf, there are dozens of bottles hidden behind the, uh, that bookshelf. Yeah. There's dozens and dozens. Yeah, because it, it's essentially, it's a two-header, this. We have got other characters along the way. But the scenes that they're together are the most compelling and, you know, the the best parts of the movie for me. Even though I chuckled at Michael Williams' character, you know, <laughs> have, having an affair with... That wasn't his wife, was it, Michael Caine's wife? It's the girlfriend, isn't it? He's, it's the marriage... girlfriend, yeah. It, it, split up with, it split up with his actual wife um, yeah. long before due to... In order to um, help his poetry. That was it. She, yeah. she, she'd, <laughs> left, she'd left him so he could write better poetry. <laughs> And um, allegedly, but yeah, yeah, it was his it was girlfriend who was with him to try and you know bring him do. In actual fact, his his girlfriend that he lived with, um, her intention of being with him was to do what actually Julie Walters did, which was bring him back to um, being somebody that saw relevance in himself and that he, he didn't have to hide in the bottom of a bottle. Uh, yeah. And, you know, she couldn't do that because she, in, in an odd way, kind of supported him rather than challenged him. Yeah. And that was what he needed. He needed that challenge that um, that Rita um, provided in order for, to shake him out of, oh, of what he was. Even though he's a bit of an arse in this, he's, oh, yeah. he's, he's, yeah. he's nowhere... Interesting, you saying about Pygmalion, he's nowhere as reprehensible as, say, Henry Higgins was. No. And he recognises that. He knows that he's an arse. <laughs> and he can be quite proud of it in certain ways. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's not self-pity, it's self-loving. Yeah. And, you know, uh, you know, with some degree of reason for him loving himself, because he is quite lovable, really, in, in a number of ways he's behaving. But um, that's more how he's... How is we, you know, behaving intentionally to push people away, and rather than it being because he can't be any other way. Yeah, his, his colleagues seem to recognise, you know, he's got issues. Obviously, but the, the bursar is, you know, out for his blood. But you know, his his, his fellow tutors realise, you know, that he has these problems, and they, they sort of accept it to a certain degree. This is like the fourth or fifth time you've seen this. Has, does it improve with age? This movie? Yeah, all except for the music. I'm just about um, to say, is it the most eighties soundtrack ever? What on yeah. earth is the instrument? Is it just some sort of crazy synthesizer that's It's some kind of crazy synth that's doing that's doing some kind of Baroque classical at various points. Um that's that kind of seems to be what they've decided to do, adapt some some Baroque classics it, yeah, it um, is. Into, yeah. into synthesizer and um probably at the time that was probably uh, seemed quite cool, but um now it's yeah. incredibly dated. But Otherwise, yeah, the, the the performances continue to impress, um, and my appreciation of of acting and and films in general, having grown over the years, has meant that this film I'm, I'm appreciating more than the last time I watched it or the first time I watched it. I can see a lot more of the the, the nuances and appreciate it. That it's it's not like some films where you, you suddenly picking up on something and go, oh. 
I didn't see that last time. It's something, you know, that changes you, the way you view it. It's not like Quadrophenia, like we were saying, where suddenly you, you, some key realisation suddenly changes how you view the entire thing. Yeah. Um, this isn't like that, but it's, it's more in a gentle vein that you just sort of pick up on some gentle things here and there and you're thinking, oh, that adds a bit of context. That, that makes me realise and appreciate it that just that little bit more. Not anything major, just that little bit. There's nothing that's sort of subtly hidden amongst the dialogue. Everything is there on the screen, yeah. isn't it? You you get what you, you get what you pay for here. This is a stage production that's been given the big screen treatment. I'm just looking now to try and find out. Both of these guys were nominated for Oscars, weren't they? I believe. Yes, right. I believe so. Yeah. Right. Let's have a look. Michael Caine was nominated along with Tom Conti for Ruben Ruben. Tom Courtney for The Dresser, another great British movie. Albert Finney, it's all English, look at this, Albert Finney for The Dresser. Yeah. Uh, and they all lost out to Robert Duval in Tender Mercies. Best Supporting Actress, ah, she wasn't nominated, I thought she was. Did she win BAFTA for it? I'm sure she won an award. It was nominated, I can't see where else. Educate me, best screenplay. She, she was an Oscar nominee, was... was... According to this, according to this, Alfred Woodard for Cross Creek, Amy Irving, Amy Irving for Yentl, Glenn Close for The Big Chill, Cher in Silkwood, and Linda Hunt won it for The Year of Living Dangerously. Was it Best Actress then? Oh, Best Actress. It's a leading role for yeah. her. You know, but, she's not. A, if anything, Michael Caine is a part to her. True. Um, very true. But um, but they were both um, leading role. Um, yeah. Here we go yeah. then. Deborah Winger for Terms of Endearment. Meryl Streep, of course. Every single Oscars uh, for Silkwood, Jane Alexander for Testament, and the winner that year she lost out to Shirley MacLaine in terms of endearment. Um, um, but yeah, they both won BAFTAs for it. Oh, uh, there we go. Right, yeah. Interesting. It's it's this wonderful period in in British movies. We we go back and we mention this quite often, don't we? There's there are some gems from the early eighties. We will focus a lot more on them. The, the film four productions in particular, we we keep mm. going back to, but it was the golden age, wasn't it? Because I think the following year didn't Chariots of Fire won Best Picture in eighty four, and Colin Welland famously stood at the Oscars and said the Brits are coming. I was just going to say that this was, you know, the sort of proto, um, the the start of the 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 British are coming as far as the the, the I would not want to use the word new wave because that means something else entirely, but yeah. the, the the return of Britain from being a local film, you know, just a domestic yeah. film audience to actually reaching out internationally yeah. again. Year before Gandhi had won Best Picture, you know, it's, it's the the beginning of something big. And as I say, look at the Best Actor, the four out of the five are Brits on the Best Actor nominees that particular year. So we must have been doing something right in the early 80s, mate, definitely. I remember round about this time, wasn't there the year of British film? There was this big celebration. It was the, there was the British film was, had a whole year dedicated to it. Oh, blimey, I'd forgotten about that. Do you remember that? It must yeah. have been about this sort of time, wasn't it? Do you remember? And everybody, you know, all the old loveys were getting involved, the old Dickie Attenboroughs and all that lot, you know. And there was a real big celebration. We'll have to work out what year that was. It must be around here some point, at some point. Yeah, because, you know... Yeah, I com- I, that, that's now triggering in my in my brain because I, I'd completely forgotten. That. I had until then. Yeah, until that that particular moment that it came out of my mouth. I'm going to have a look and see what year it was. The year of British film. I'm sure that's what it was called, wasn't it? Yeah. 
let's have a look. Nothing coming up on Google. We'll find out. We'll find out. Perhaps actually pick a movie from that particular year to see what was being promoted in that. It was a massive thing. I remember it. But yeah, mm. Because, you know, they had the year of the child, didn't they, I think, or the year of the disabled yeah. and things like that. There was these hugely sort and, of... Nomin- and, and obviously film is more important than the disabled children. <laughs> obviously. So we, we know that. <laughs> well, yeah, um, but we can't remember what year it actually was. Yeah, well, for us, every year is the year of the film. Oh, definitely so, the British movie uh, in this podcast. Yeah. Yes, indeed. <laughs> In your recommendation and rating system, uh, I'd say it's it's one that people should um, not necessarily go and purposely seek out at the cinema. Although mm-hmm. I would personally in, enjoy, if you're a film fan, I think you would enjoy seeing it on the big screen. Yeah, but, um, I think everybody really should consider um, keeping an eye out for it to um, see on a streaming service um, or on television because it's a film that says something about a. a a point in British cinema, as we as we've discussed, but I think it has a lot to say about life and about the value of not following a pattern set by others and, and prescribed by others, and about the value of stepping outside that and getting a, a different view and a different education to what you've been consigned to. Really, yeah, yep. Um, so there's a value in it for everybody to actually just see that. Even if it's not classical literature, you you know that is the the angle. It's reaching out into some reaching out into film or reaching out into other avenues of of interest beyond just um, your your X Factor and your oh, um, yeah. your curry, curry on a Friday night. You know, there's, there's yeah. more to more to life. Yeah. Yep. For a first time watch for me, I enjoyed it. Um, surprised myself that I hadn't seen it previously. It's a good example of a movie that that demonstrates that you have to fight to get what you want sometimes, um, not give up along the way. And as I say, as well as a marvellous source material from Willie Russell that tugs on the heartstrings in all the right places, I laughed out loud, as I say, several times. The supporting characters are equally as important to this story as the two main leads. Apart from the the only drawback would be the soundtrack, as you <laughs> mentioned. Um, this bizarre synth pop sing along in the pub. <laughs> but then also at that particular point, as you say, you get this very, very good insight into the family life that Rita has led with her mother and, and the hopes and aspirations that have gone astray there. Fine performance by Michael Caine. Even better performance by Julie Waters. Lewis Gilbert, you know, back on board with Michael Caine after Alfie, after 20 odd years, uh, does does a sterling job in adapting something that could be quite constricted because it is a, you know, the source material is a play. Uh, in my rating system, I gave it four out of five stars. And that, that, I think, is um, it's more than fair. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'd say I enjoyed it. So, uh, excellent stuff. Let's take a little break and we'll be back with, I believe it's my choice for the next episode. It is. Okay, next time, Stephen, it's my choice. As we say, we're going way, way back to 1935. Ooh. It's possibly the oldest movie we've covered, I believe. 
possibly the biggest director we've covered so far. It's an early Hitchcock. Oh, about time we sort of di- dipped our toe into Hitchcock waters. I think before he becomes Mr. Hollywood and the toast of Tinseltown, Robert Donat, I believe Madeline Carroll is in this as well. It's the first of three adaptations of the 39 steps. Brilliant. Have you seen it? Uh, I have. And I've seen some of the other, I've seen the, um, Kenneth Moore. I love <laughs> Kenneth that Moore one. Yeah. And I've also seen the oh, Robert Powell. I think Robert Powell it. one. Yeah. Um, I think the Robert Powell one was the first one I have saw. Yeah. I've seen them. In, I think I've seen them in reverse order. Of when they <laughs> went, but, um, but yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, um, I've seen it, um, and obviously give you my proper review. Oh, God, it, but I'm, I'm looking forward to um, to watching it again, yeah. and then talking about it with you. I love the the Kenneth Moore version. That's the version that I very first saw. I believe it was a Sunday afternoon in the late seventies, you know. But this one, it's a very important film. You know, it's it's pre Hollywood Hitchcock. I think John Laurie's in it. I think he plays the Scottish crofter that the, they hide in his cottage or something. I'm sure it's a very yeah, early role for John Laurie. Right yeah. But I just remember this being, despite the age of it, I remember it being very well polished, a lot of good special effects, the use of the train and stuff like that. So I haven't seen it for a couple of years, and I'm really looking forward to going back and having a little chat with you about it, mate. So, yeah, excellent stuff. The 39 Steps from 1935. Yeah. Once again, sir, thank you for being here on this horrible, m- grim Sunday morning. My pleasure. I'll see you very soon. Will do, mate. Cheers, mate. Bye-bye. Take care. Bon voyage. Good luck. Thank you. Hand up, sir. Ha 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 ha!